Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at YCharts. Michael, last week at the Fed press conference, Jerome Powell said, if you're a home buyer or a young person looking to buy a home, you need a bit of a reset. We need to get back to a place where supply and demand are back together, where inflation is down low and mortgages, mortgage rates are low again. He needs a reset. It's possible. He said, we do our work in a way that we're housing market settles in a new place and housing availability and credit availability at appropriate levels. All right. So one of my favorite tools on YCharts, you can break down economic data by category. And one of them is housing. And they have all these different housing charts that you can look at. This one is very telling to me because it goes back to the 1960s. U.S. housing starts. This is basically how many new homes are started to be built in the U.S. And you can see every time there's a cycle, I think you call this a higher low, right, Michael, if you're doing technical analysis on this? No, I think you're looking at lower highs. Oh, sorry, lower highs, not higher low. You're right. Sorry. I'm not a technical analysis and <laughs> analyst. But so every time it seems like the peak is moving a little lower and lower. And I think we probably just hit the peak of this cycle. You can see it already. Look at the drop down from the last month. It was down 14% month over month. I got to imagine we've hit the peak of the cycle with rates being so high and people backing off a little bit. I don't think that's a good thing. So yes, this may bring some price reductions and prices down, but I don't see how this helps the supply shortage of new homes. It's hard to see this turning around quickly where home builders are all of a sudden going to go back online and start building more houses, even if inflation comes down in short order. So I think we could be looking at a situation where the housing market from this is maybe better off in the short run in terms of housing prices aren't just going to keep going parabolic, but way worse off in the long run because we're probably going to get fewer new houses being built because of this. Thoughts? You know, it's performing awfully. Home builders. Are they? Yeah. Market's pretty bright green today and home builders are up very little. Okay. Not great. Do you want to Not check great. out the real estate data from our friends at YCharts? Go to YCharts.com. Maybe they'll even send you a t-shirt like Michael has. Nope, that's only for podcasters. That's our merch <laughs> 40% only. 40% off the highs, by the way. Wow. Home builders. Okay. And you can get 20% off the highs if you sign up for YCharts using Animal Spirits as your reference. Tell them we sent you. That was very effective, Ben. Kudos to you. I think on my feet. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spheres with Michael and Ben. I just want to start off today, Michael, just we got a bunch of stats we're going to go through about how crazy things have been the last week. Can we just take a step back? real quick, and just talk about how crazy this like two and a half year run for the markets has been. I mean, we talk about this stuff every week, but just thinking about what's been going on. I mean, you have companies that were down 40 or 50% in early 2020, and then they went up like five to six times. And now they're down 70 to 90% or something. It seems like week after week, there's something crazy going on in the markets. So I think it's worth just taking a step back and recognizing this is a very wild time in the markets. Can we talk about the Fed real quick? I think something that has gotten lost in all of the madness, and this is step back territory, okay? We're zooming out. All of what we're experiencing right now is because of the coronavirus. Yes. If the coronavirus doesn't happen and we're on a different timeline, we have our sliding doors thing where that doesn't happen. It's hard to say, would we have gone, I don't know, 50 or 60 years without seeing inflation this high? I mean, <laughs> it is who the heck knows, but all of this that we saw with the meme stock mania 
and the growth stock craziness. Now, we were trending towards that. Now, the memes, growth VC was trending hot. Crypto was trending hot, obviously. But the stimmies, the easy money put it way over the edge. And now we're on the other side of this and all because of the pandemic. And I was thinking about the weight of the world on Powell's shoulders. Now, we manage money for our clients and feel an enormous amount of responsibility for their assets and making sure that we get them to their desired destination. That's what they entrust us to do. I can't imagine the immense amount of pressure that Jerome Powell feels. How does he turn it off? How does he go home and talk to his family as if I just can't imagine the pressure that he feels. Especially since he basis. can't trade stocks anymore because the Fed is not allowed to. I agree with you that the Fed is overreacting. And not that interest rate rises, increases aren't appropriate. Of course they are. But they underdid it. And it seems to me now that they're overdoing it and maybe hell-bent on putting the economy to a recession is not good. So what you said about Powell having all this pressure on him. So Larry Summers yesterday, there was a story in Bloomberg, and he said, the U.S. jobless rate needs to arrive above 5% for a sustained period in order to curb inflation. See, he said we need five years of unemployment above 5%. Or where does need, that number come from? I don't know where he came up. Or we need two years of 7.5% or five years of 6% or one year of 10% unemployment. And I don't know where he gets these from. I'm doing the Galifianakis thing. But the balancing out of this, of a balancing act of millions and millions of people are mad about inflation. But then you talk about, well, hundreds of millions, hundreds oh yes, of millions. Sorry. But then you look at this and in terms of human toll it takes from you could hate inflation. But if you lost your job, you'd probably say I would take inflation back in a heartbeat as opposed to losing my job if I can't find another one. So doing that balancing act, which is their dual mandate, price, stability and employment, trying to balance those two right now seems pretty tricky to be in. It, yeah, it's a job that I wouldn't want to have. I've been kind of critical of them lately, but I would not want to have to decide what is right and what is wrong here, and then how to thread that needle. Jim Bianco was on the Bankless podcast talking about all things macro. I highly recommend it. And talking about why sentiment is so far in the gutter. This is an interesting, obvious observation that I hadn't thought of. I hadn't framed it this way. Actually, yeah, last week we said that everybody is affected by inflation. 100% of adults in this country know that prices are rising. The reason why this is so much worse in terms of sentiment than a normal recession is because a Normal recession, what do you see employment go up to? 6%, 8%, 10% and really, really bad ones. So it affects one out of 15, one out of 20 people directly in terms of people that are impacted by losing their job. 100% of the population is being affected now by prices rising. Which again is why it's tough. I guess the one thing I would say is they obviously have a very short leash. How much patience would have been involved to say, let's just give this a couple more months to see. Maybe we reached that point already and it's past that and saying we don't want it to spiral out of control. I did they know. just capitulate? It's possible. You talk about capitulation. You did a piece, I guess, last week. 40% of stocks in the S&P are at a 52-week low. Your line was investors are panic selling, but it doesn't mean a bottom is imminent. Last week was pretty bad, wasn't it? Last two weeks. Last two weeks in the market. This Jason Gepfert stat just kind of blew my mind. More than 90% of stocks, and this was on June 16th, so what was this, Thursday? More than 90% of stocks in the S&P declined today. It's the fifth time in the past seven days. Since 1928, there have been exactly zero precedents. This is the most overwhelming display of selling in history. And I think this gets back to our point that we've talked about a lot about markets happening faster. It's almost like we know this is coming, and it's almost like, get it over with. And I feel like, me too, it's almost like, if we're going to have a recession, let's just do it. Maybe that, that's just because I feel like we've been talking about it for months and months. It's like, Rip the bandit off and go. And I feel like that's what the market is doing, regardless of if we have a recession or not. The market is saying, we're going to price it in anyway. 
And we're going to make it happen really fast. And it seems, I don't know if it's the free flow of information or algorithms or whatever, but the market seems to just say, when we're going to go down, screw it. We're all going down together and we don't even care anymore. That seems to be the market's way of doing things now. The point that I was making last week about pessimism peaking before the market's bottom, a good example of that happening was November 2008. So you saw the percentage of stocks at a 52-week low peak in November 2008. Now, as you know, the market didn't bottom for another, I don't know, five months or something like that. The market bottomed in March and it was 25% lower. So it's obviously possible that last week was the capitulation low that people were looking for, but it's not guaranteed as the point that I was making. The one thing I remember from that too, I think it was either November or December of that year, 2008, emerging markets bottomed in like December. They shot up and they came back down a little bit in March, but they never, like they bottomed before the rest of the stock market was. And it's like the risky stuff maybe bottoms first. But your point about pessimism bottoming before the stock market does, it's also true that- No, peaking, peaking, peaking. Yeah, peaking. The stock market is going to bottom way before the economy does. And I don't know oh, yeah. when that happens, but that's going to be the thing that catches people off sides again. Well, the big question is, can the stock market bottom while the Fed is still tightening? Here's my other thing. Do you think the stock market is going to be smart enough to sniff out inflation, the peak of inflation? Is the stock yes. market going to rise before that happens? Is it yes. going to come after a good print? Because it's been so long, you wonder if it's like, you know when you go out to play basketball and you haven't played in like months and months or years and years and your jump shot just feels... Isn't that the stock yes. market with inflation? Yes. It doesn't feel right until it gets some reps in. There are no reps for this. I wonder if the market is saying, you know what, guilty until proven innocent, where normally the market is forward looking, but maybe it's going to be in a wait and see mode. I tend to think the market will sniff this out, but we'll see. To your point about a lot of stocks obviously doing it horribly, Bespoke had this great stat, 54% of stocks in the S&P 500 are below their pre-COVID highs. So that would be like beginning of 2020, end of February. 2019? February, oh, February 2020, okay. I think. Wow. The last two weeks, the S&P 500 was down 5%. Back-to-back down 5% weeks. That's happened one, two, three, four, five. That's happened seven times going back to post-World War II. It happened in 1974, 1987, 98 during LTCM, I guess. It happened in 2002 and then twice in 08 and in the pandemic crash. So again, those are back-to-back weekly declines. Now, it's a little too gloomy here. Let's get glass half full, Ben. If you go out performance one year later, it was only negative. The only time it was negative a year later was 1987. Positive spin zone? Positive spin zone. One year later, it was positive. Every time I try to get positive, you tell me to back off. So (laughs) I thought you were too soon. I think now, now we're seeing capitulation. Maybe I'm a value investor. I'm always early. Bill Gross had that great quote about every investor has a different like internal alarm clock. Some people panic early, some people panic late. I personally know I always buy early and I'm okay with that. I know I'm never going to hit the bottom, but I'm also buying early and buying at the bottom and buying after the bottom. So like, that's okay. I was early and wrong. Two weeks ago, I bought T-Arc and now, Uh, now you're seeing the higher low that I was looking for. Whether or not that, you know, we see follow through, we'll see. You're going to get back into it? Nah, fool me once. Okay. Did you see this Bank of America bull and bear indicator? It's down to 0.0 from 0.2. (laughs) 0.0. Can this go negative? Honestly, it makes sense given your talk about sentiment. It kind of does make sense. It makes total sense. This year is awful. The economic data has yet to turn. Rates are spiking. Inflation is super high. Of course, it makes sense. Another Stephen B spoke 
So on a given year, I think, or over a long period of time, the market is up like 51% of all days. It's a slight, slight, slightly positive. Only 43% of days for the first half of the year have been positive. The wow. only years lower than that, again, post-World War II, were 02, 84. I don't remember 84 being a bad year. Oh, that's because I wasn't even born yet. I'm an 85 baby. 1982, 73 and 74, 1970, and 1962. This is a really, really bad year. By the way, as someone who does this kind of data on a regular basis, I can really appreciate this chart. That's a great chart. Yeah, it's a great chart. I've looked at the long term. I've never seen it year over year. Okay, so positive spin zone time. I looked at like how long it takes. You actually asked me to do this. You gave me some work. You said, Josh was asking, okay, we've seen peak to trough before and then break even from the bottom, which I've done in the past. I think the average peak to trough since World War II is like 12 months. You did this last week. You said, how long does it take from a peak to a bottom? Yeah, peak to bottom is 12 months on average. What we said was, no, 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 no. How long do stocks stay in a bear market? So once you've breached the 20% level, then how long do they stay in a bear market for? And you had some great data here. Yeah, I looked at like the average number of days to go down 20% from the peak is like 236. So whatever, eight months, call it. Days from down 20% to the bottom is an average of 131 days. This is since World War II. And it's kind of funny, there's two of them in 1948 and 9, and then 1957, it literally hit down 20%. Then that was the bottom. Let's clarify. So we had conflicting data and I was saying, what's going on here? You are a calendar person. You gave me work to do. You know, the worst thing is as a blogger who does this kind of data is you get someone who comes to you and says, actually, something's wrong. And you go, oh crap, what did I do? And you gave me work on a Sunday night. I was getting ready to sit down and watch some TV. And you said, Ben, your data's wrong. And I looked Wait, it up and I- You don't work on Sunday nights? <laughs> no, because yeah, I was doing something similar, but I am a trading session counter. Tra- yeah, you In use other trading words, days and I use yeah. calendar days because you're actually living the calendar days. Anyway, I said, here's the other stat though. So there's been 12 bear markets, not counting the current one since World War II. Seven out of the 12 have bottomed in 46 days or less once that 20% level was breached. That's very encouraging. That's encouraging. Obviously, the downside would be- 1973, 74, 2000 to 2002, and then 2007 to 2009. Those ones were much longer. And someone replied to me and saying, that's fine, but this is a combination of the 1970s and the dot-com bubble, so we're screwed. (laughs) Could be. By the way, more positive spin. 46 days, 46 calendar days, that's only like, what is that, 35 trading days? I think probably less. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the other one. Five out of the 12 are over in a month. I think that's the thing, is you either, you get into 20% and you get a whoosh down, or you get one of the extended ones that just chops you up and kills you. But I do think your thing about V-shaped recoveries being over, that still makes sense to me. It's still a non-zero chance, though, that if war is over, inflation gets better, that you see a swell of like short covering, buying. I think we're past the V. I think it's over. Okay, so more like this is a U. Even if we go to new highs in the next 100 days, I don't think that's a V. V is straight down, straight up. All right. I want to put a positive spin on 60-40 stuff. Vanguard sent me this. They look at stock bond diversification. That was a bit of a name drop. I mean, Vanguard sent you this. Every once in a while, someone from Vanguard, big listeners of the show, people in Vanguard, will send me some of their research and say, hey, I thought you might find this interesting. Sorry. Remember on a recent Twitter spaces when Tom Lydon sent him a modern day Jack Bogle? (laughs) (laughs) I took umbrage with that. (laughs) You almost choke on your own spit. (laughs) Okay. Here's a good stat. During the previous three years, 2019 to 2021, a 60-40 portfolio delivered 14.3% annualized return. 
So even if we had a 12% loss in 2022, the four-year return would be like an annualized 7%, which is like historically accurate. That's good. It's not bad. That's not bad. Come on, people. Okay. Since 1976, investors have never encountered a three-year span of losses in both stocks and bonds. That's encouraging. Now, the counterpoint would be that since 1976, and rates went up really quick and then came down ever since then, we're in a new regime. But I think the whole thing of bonds and stocks being down the same year is scary. Bonds and stocks being down over a three, five-year period seems way more unlikely to me, both of them. I don't want to minimize anybody's pain because another- No. Thank you, Beastbook, by the way. We're like stealing all their work here, but they were great this week. They showed the six-month rolling return for a 60-40 portfolio. And this is about as bad as it's been ever. The only worst periods was 2008. This is absolutely brutal. It really is. Why did the aggregate bond index have to start in 1976? Why didn't it start in 1920? Come on, back that stuff up. Just fill it in with made-up data. I agree. That's how they do all of them. Great chart from Ram Capital. He showed the Fed funds rate versus inflation. And needless to say, it's, it's never looked like this. That's the thing. So this is the alligator teeth chart. The crazy thing is it feels like rates have come up considerably, and yet they're still way, way, way below inflation and not even close yet. I guess not even close. mortgages are the closest ones, but most government bond yields are still way below inflation. This is why right now is a difficult period, as are all periods, but especially now, because you could easily make the case to me that investors are too bearish, that we already had a major washout that 30 plus percent on the NASDAQ, 22, 3% on the S&P, and down 80% in all of these names, we already got rid of the excess. You can make that case. You could also make the case that look how early we are in the tightening cycle. How could you possibly be bullish now? I think both of those things could be true. I think because people keep waiting for the market to look past it. It's like, we okay, we already know, again, getting like, let's go. I think that's what the market wants to do. Like, if we're going to do it, let's. that's why, why doesn't the Fed just hike to 300 basis points now? Why wait? Let's just do it. No, no, no. You don't really mean (laughs) that. But I think because I don't think they want to get so high. I think they want to say they want to get that high, but they want to see the data come in. And so they never have to get to those levels. I honestly think that's what they want. Do we see a rate cut in 2023? Can we make that bet on Calshay? I would bet that we see a rate cut in 2023, depending on what the odds are. I would be more inclined to bet on 2024. 2024? I'd say first rate cut 2024, not 2023. I don't know. Don't you think... In that case, if the Fed hikes, 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 and then immediately lowers rates again, don't look like clowns in that instance. Maybe that's what they want to do. Well, they did that in 2018, no? They started raising rates and then they started cutting them again. It's true. It would be crazy if the Fed is doing 75 basis point hikes and inflation has already peaked and it's behind us. Wouldn't that be just perfect? Well, talk about clown show. What if that's the case? If inflation peaked and now the economy is already slowing and they just jam our head into the toilet of a recession. Yeah. Well, then we get recession, they lower rates again, and zero percentage rates forever again. Back to normal. All right. So last week, we were driving up north, going up for a wedding. Wife asked me, I don't know how it came up. She was worried about rates rising and all this stuff and seeing it on the news. She said, what is a recession? What actually is like the definition of a recession? And to talk to a civilian about that, it's not an easy thing to define. You know, like, well, it's two quarterly GDP prints that are negative. Is that an easy thing to define? Really? I think it kind of is. Okay, your wife asks you, what's your answer? I said it's GDP contracting for two quarters, but it's like, okay, what does that mean? Well, no, I just think well, it's the a general- Well, the goods and services produced by the- I think you're overcomplicating it. I think it's just a general slowdown in business activity. So you get unemployment picks up, GDP comes down. Okay, I'm just saying there's not an easy elevator answer for this. 
I disagree. I just gave you one. It's a general slowdown in business activity. That's a pretty squishy answer. What, your wife was looking for metrics? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I should have pulled out some charts from Y charts, I guess. I don't know. So Steve Matthews tweeted last week, PSA, we are not in a recession, not close to one. An average of 488,000 jobs, an extremely high number, has been added each month this year. Jobs contract in a recession. We are still in a boom. In the 2020 recession, 22 million jobs were lost. I feel like that's just a pretty simple answer to what's a recession. It's when people lose their jobs. That's it. Is that not it? Yeah. Unemployment is at 3.6% right now. What's the floor that it could go to, or the ceiling, I guess? We have a recession, but unemployment barely budges. It goes to like four and a half or five. What's the lowest at unemployment? I don't know. Things are weird. Why not? What's the lowest unemployment? Pull up eye charts. What's the lowest unemployment has ever been during a recession? I got this. I'm going to guess like six or seven. And like the 1990 recession, what was that? In the aftermath. Okay, hang on. I got it. See, the great thing about Y charts here is- They pull up those gray charts for you now. Yeah. I used to have to create these gray bars myself. Same. All right. So the early 1950s was the lowest that unemployment has ever been. It was like 2.5%. In a recession? No. You mean generally? Generally. And that went up to 5.7 at the height. That's the ideal. That's what we're comparing ourselves against. 2.3 to 5.7. So 5.7% unemployment is the lowest we've ever gone to after a recession. So could we beat that this time and go below 5.7? I think that would be interesting. I think so. That'd be interesting if that happened. Maybe that's why Larry Summer says it has to be above 5% because it's never not gone above 5 and then seen an inflation fall. Okay, we were speaking of interest rates a minute ago. You produced this U.S. yield curve. And it was today versus one year ago. And honestly, some of these lower rates, so this is the one month, three month, all the way out to the 30-year U.S. Treasury. Like the two years, oh my God. So it went from 0.16% to 3.4% in a year. Just a huge move. If you're a bond person and you don't say this is the belly of the curve, you're not doing your job. (laughs) You wait your whole life to talk about the belly of the curve moving like this, right? It even looks like a belly. (laughs) You can't not say it. Belly of the curve. It's moved substantially. And yet the 30-year, 20-year, they're up, but not nearly as much. Speaking of belly, I feel like I'm getting weighted. I'm not happy about it. Are you still seeing the trainer? Yeah. So now I'm like overdoing. I'm like, oh, well, I'm like working out twice a week. I'm lifting weight twice a week. Now I can like eat whatever I want. Maybe I told you this. I caught myself in the mirror. I didn't like what I saw. So it's almost time for me to re-engage with this whole 30, which I'm not excited about. I was in Austin so you, this weekend. You need to Go lower ahead. your own interest rates. Big time. The belly of my curve is not down. looking good. We went to Lambert's. We've been there a few times. Oh, yeah, the yeah. The place with the boar ribs. The barbecue place, yeah. And I had this queso with burnt ends. Oof, that sounds awesome. It was ridiculous. So I feel like I went out with a bang. It's way, way harder to eat good in the summer. I mean, you could say, well, over the holidays, maybe. But I think in the summer, you're especially going out and about more often. Who am I kidding? I have dinner plans on Thursday. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so this is the quickest tournament I've ever done in my life. We had a 7.30 flight on Saturday morning and a 7.30 flight on Sunday morning because we had a wedding Saturday night and I had to be home for Father's Day. Here's what I did in Austin. I scootered. It was Uh, so much fun. So we did that when we were there a couple years ago. I love scooting around there. So I don't know what's going on with flights, but they said at least 14,000 domestic flights were canceled or delayed this holiday weekend. I think it's a combination of there was like some weather, inclement weather. There was staff shortages. I don't know if it's flight or workers or whatever. When we flew a couple 
weeks ago whenever we went to Florida, we got to the gate and they said, sorry, there's no gate agents here to open the door for us. There's no one here to receive us. We had to wait for like 30 minutes till someone came. And I think it was staffing shortages again. Being stuck in an airport is incredibly frustrating and stressful. Yeah, that's no fun. Listen, I don't want to read your tweets about it, but I get yes. it. It's very stressful. That's fair. There were some NFT people on my flight on the way back. What do you mean NFT people? It's NFT week in New York City. Okay. So I saw some gear. I mean, they're wearing their own merch, the NFT merch? Yep. They're still doing NFT week, even given the circumstances? Some NFTs are actually holding in there. Now, the denominator is down 70%. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, so inflation is a global thing, as we know. Look at this chart about German producer prices up 33% year over year. Okay, what's the story here? I mean, I guess it's just they're way more dependent on energy. I think it's an energy story. I think that this is the only thing that investors care about right now. And I think that bad economic news will be cheered by investors because it will be a sign that we're one step closer to the Fed bringing down inflation. Disagree or agree? Yeah, and the economy slows demand for energy potentially slows. Maybe that holds down the price of oil and natural gas and these things. I agree. I think that if we get some bad numbers, the market will cheer. By the way, people did not like my geopolitical analysis last week, or at least a handful of people didn't, saying that we should go try to stop Russia from killing innocent people in Ukraine. Sorry, people didn't like that. But let's say the war comes to an end. What part do they not like? Do they not like you being a hawk? You were advocating for war. I think that was the problem. People said I was advocating for war. I'm sorry. I'm just throwing it out there that like maybe putting an end to the war would be good because we stopped the killing of innocent people and maybe it slows inflation down. But let's just say the war, for whatever reason, does come to an end. How much of a relief rally is there in the market at that point? Good question. How much of that is priced into this everything? And like, does oil drop 20% overnight or does that not work that way? Yeah, feasible. Did you see what happened to energy stocks? I didn't even realize how quickly they went into a bear market. Did you see that? Very quick, which I guess I don't understand. Is that pricing things in? Why did that happen? I honestly don't know. Okay. Profit taking? That seems to be the question of the last three years, though, is, well, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Why did that happen? But stuff just happens. (laughs) We keep talking about when are we going to see the data turn? When are we going to see unemployment tick up? When are we going to see consumer changing their habits? By the way, gas is below $5 a gallon nationally. Okay. That's a good thing. Can hang our hat on that. Sure. $4.99 probably. I paid $4.99 today. (laughs) It's a psychological round number. (sighs) I guess. From Delta One, Kroger said that the typical basket size continues to decline and customers are aggressively swapping to store brands. What do you mean the basket size declines? Like the amount of people checking out stuff is going down? The number of things that they're buying, I suppose. The other day in CVS, maybe a month or two ago, what did I buy? I bought the store brand CVS. Maybe it was NyQuil or DayQuil. I can't remember. I looked at the, is it VIX? I looked at the brand name. I looked at the CVS store brand. I read the ingredients and CVS is getting smart. I think it's said on the package, like same exact thing, same exact ingredients. So I did this, I did this, held them together, exact same thing and 60% of the price. Why would you not go with the name brand, the store brand? I always do. Exactly. Your value shopper. Yes. All right. This is from Bloomberg. Credit card rates are just ridiculous. So they talked about the headline from this Bloomberg article is credit card rates at 20%, mortgage near 6%. The Fed's hikes are already having an impact. Look at how quickly credit card rates jumped up. I'm sorry, but you can see- What the hell? What the absolute hell? By the way, this is a weird chart. Where are the months? Where are the years? It starts in 2000 and they don't have any of their years on it for some reason. But you can see as rates were falling this entire time, 
credit card rates were rising. And then they kind of stalled out. And then they all of a sudden just from this thing went from 16 to over 20. Such I'm sorry, bullshit. but this is bullshit. This is the banks just taking advantage because interest rates are up a little bit. And this is when potentially in a recession, you start to see people less and less able to pay their bills on time. This is the absolute definition of horseshit what's going on right now with credit card rates. I mean, the bank, they raise credit card rates 5% and then they raise your savings account 10 basis points. It's like they don't even care anymore. Like they're not even trying with the optics of showing that like we're trying. They're not doing anything. Not even trying. What is our Marcus account now? It's a buck and a quarter, maybe. Is it over 100 basis points yet? Yeah. No, it's not. It's 85 basis points still. Really? Are you kidding me? What's the Fed at? 85. They have not, man. And they're saying that's four times the national average. Yeah, get lost. Get lost. This is the survey of the week. How much money do you need to leave your absolutely ideal life? This is a research report. I'm not looking at the data. I want to guess. Okay, the answer for most people. How much money what? How how much much money money do you need to lead your absolutely ideal life? Are we talking about income or net worth? Net worth. On net worth? A million? 10 million bucks. Shut up. And Americans say they need 100 million. I don't know who they asked here. This is a joke. When asked what their ideal lottery prize would be. A lottery prize. Okay. Come on. Okay. You know what? My ideal lottery prize is a billion (laughs) dollars. Why would you go less than that? I missed the lottery thing. But people also said 100 billion. The majority of people in the U.S. had 100 million or more to live an ideal life. Maybe it's just because of the way they answered this. But it was just funny that the U.S. was by far, I need way more money for this. Of course, we're consumers, spenders. All right, speaking of spending, this was interesting. So I think you could bucket our audience into different groups by YouTube audience skews younger, podcast audience skews Gen X, and then blog audience has a lot more retirees that read. I get once a month someone asking me, how can I print your blog out so I can read it on paper? Those are boomers, right? Yeah. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. But someone said last week, I would love for you guys to talk more about like what to do in retirement. You know, we had that podcast about the 4% rule a couple months ago with Wade Fowle. And that was actually, people really seemed to like that. It was pretty popular. This shows spending in retirement by households who have $1 to $3 million in investable assets. They're fully retired. How much they spend by age bracket. So it's 60 to 64, 65 to 69, and then up. Nice. I know you're going to do it. And you can see... When you're 60, it starts out high and it's like $100,000 a year. So that's, I don't know, if we're talking about a $2 million portfolio, it's like 5%. But it goes down every five years until it bottoms in 80 to 84. You're spending like $25,000 less per year. And then it increases a little bit at the end because you're probably paying more in medical costs. I don't think people think like this. I think people think in a linear straight line or that I'm going to spend more and it's going to go up by 3% a year and it's going to slowly ramp up. I don't think people realize that you're spending in retirement goes down over time, probably because you can't enjoy it as much when you're 85 as you can when you're 60. You Correct. can't travel as much when you're that age. Anyway, interesting data. All right, can we talk housing stuff? Sure. Here's what I think the Fed needs to do. So Jerome Powell said we need a reset. What if they said, we know 6% mortgage rates suck. We realize that. But once inflation is tamed, we can lower them again. I think if they just said that, I think people would feel better about this. I did the thing where you look at the monthly payment at 3%, which was the beginning of the year. It's not that long ago. Less than six months ago is 3% mortgage. Now, last week we saw someone said 6.3. I looked at the difference going from a $300,000 house to a $700,000 house. And it's like $500 more a month to $1,200 more a month. It's a pretty big interest increase. Mike Simonson says, even with that, the median price of a single family home in the US last week was up to $454,000. He said he's kind of surprised that it's still moving up. Even though like, 
and bidding wars haven't totally gone away. 22.7% of new listings went into contract immediately last week. So there's wow. still some of that stuff going on. Maybe it's just a little residual. I wonder if those are cash offers. That's my point is, don't you think this just makes housing inequality even worse? Where it's either rich people or people who are house rich are the only ones who can buy it now for a while. Because if you're house rich, yes, it would stink to trade up from your 3% mortgage. But you've got so much equity built into your house that you can say, eh, well, I'm going to be selling my other one for so much more than I paid for it anyway. Maybe I can hold my nose and buy and then I'll refinance in three years or something. But all these other first-time people who aren't rich are shit out of luck. That's why I think the Fed, I don't know. So this is from the Wall Street Journal. At low interest rates, people could afford the mortgage payment, but not necessarily the down payment. Now they can't afford either. Yes, exactly. This is the worst of both worlds, unfortunately. Now you can say, well, it's going to stop prices from going up and it probably will and it probably should, but... Oh, it definitely will. Prices aren't going to drop enough to make it equal to what they were at 3%, which... I guess you could say that was just an abnormal situation, whatever, but it is what it is. Okay, total U.S. home equity increased almost 20% in the first quarter to $27.8 trillion, a record high. The amount of tappable equity increased by $1.2 trillion to more than $11 trillion, and that is, tappable means you have more than 20% in your home you can take out because you can't go above that 20% loan-to-value ratio or whatever. Close to 75% of it belongs to borrowers with mortgage rates below 4%. Wow. I mean, is that money just trapped forever now? Because you're not going to see any more cash-out refinances. Nope. I mean, is an adjustable rate HELOC a thing where you can take out an arm on a HELOC where it's <laughs> it's low for five years and then resets or something? Is that a thing? Uh, I don't I think that's it. a thing. Could it become a thing? Because that money's just going to be sitting there. What is it going to do? People are going to want to use that for something. I guess maybe they plug their nose and they do it, but I certainly don't feel Well, you can sorry. still take out a HELOC. It's not like 6% is like 14%. True. Yeah. And just you can pay, still do yeah. it. I guess you're right. It's... Harder. And again, I don't feel bad for homeowners because they've done extremely well and they have a huge cushion in their houses already. So I found the worst chart of the week. We're pivoting to crypto now. Somebody tweeted, Bitcoin owners, everything you are feeling right now, dot, dot, <laughs> dot, is in here. And it's a chart. I can't really see. This goes back to like 2011 when nobody owned Bitcoin or very few people or whatever this goes back to. And it's a logarithmic chart and it basically makes the drop look like nothing. And FYI, it's not nothing. Is it 70% in Bitcoin? I know it was over 70 in ETH. I think it's 70 in Bitcoin too. At least 60. This chart is deplorable. Another crypto thing that I absolutely hate is people who show crypto returns from 2008 because it went from literally $0 or one cent, whatever it started out as and showing how it's 326,000%. I'm sorry. A lot of mental gymnastics going on. I don't know. By the way, how are we still not figured out who Satoshi is? Where are all my reporters? How has no one figured this out yet? No one's let it slip once over like a cocktail by a fire late night somehow? Like I was there with Satoshi on week one. No one? Yeah, it's like the skulls. You ever see that movie? Yeah. It's like a That's secret a society. Decent 90s movie. For some reason, Paul Walker. my wife loves that movie and it was on in the hotel room this weekend. That's why I mentioned it. I'm like, haven't you seen this sh- movie like a million times it's very very 90s paul walker the dude from dawson's creek joshua jackson yeah all right so there was some news over the weekend about BlockFi's balance sheet and what's going on there and wasn't looking so hot and this morning we found out that ftx what exactly happened they extended them a 250 million dollar cash injection I don't know exactly what that means. Revolving credit facility, meaning you have access to that capital to tap it when you need it. So does this mean this is not an equity position, right? They're being paid like a bank? 
to lend them money? As far as I'm concerned, a credit facility would be borrowing money. I'm guessing at a pretty high rate, I would imagine. So people were saying say. that FTX bailed out BlockFi and somebody made a good counterpoint. It's like, wait a minute, this is not a bailout. A bailout, and I guess maybe this is semantics here, a bailout is usually from the government. This is more like a Warren Buffett kind of. So Sam Bankman-Fried, he said, BlockFi is financially strong. All operations are normal as they always have been and all assets are safe. I don't know. How is FTX, I asked you this morning, how are they the only ones who are willing and able to pounce right now? Were they smarter on the way up than everyone else? I think my answer is they're not doing the lending like BlockFi and they didn't expand their operations like Coinbase. FTX is an exchange custodian. And we were talking about this last week on the Compound Friends with Eric Jackson. I think they have 50 engineers or 50 employees. I can't remember what the exact number is, but Coinbase, as we've been talking about, they had 3,500 people. So FTX, I don't know if they're making more money per trade or whatever, they were so much leaner than their competitors. I think this is a big deal because if BlockFi, and we've obviously had Zach on a bunch and to talk about BlockFi, if BlockFi went down, that would be pretty scary, I think, for crypto in general. If any because decentralized they platforms, yeah. Unlike Celsius, which was offering like 18% interest, BlockFi wasn't doing that. BlockFi was at, what was BlockFi at with Bitcoin? Was it 7 or 8%, something like that? So if they weren't able to sustain themselves, that would have been alarming. By the way, I become more and more impressed with Sam Bankman-Fried, just how he runs things. And I think it's because he comes to it from a more Wall Street background, and he doesn't come from it from a psycho crypto background. He doesn't talk like a true believer. He talks about it from the position of someone who's hedging and using financial markets. And I think that's probably why they've been so successful. But how do they not just own all of crypto after all this? I used this analogy before. It's Forrest Gump with the shrimp boat and he comes back and all the other boats are wrecked from the hurricane and he just cleans up. Doesn't that seem like what's happening? Yeah, this seems like a big deal. The fact that they're stepping in and maybe stabilizing the market. Obviously, the story's being still written. We'll see He's what the happens. Warren Buffett of crypto. If you're looking for like signs of a potential headline indicator bottom, take this with a giant grain of salt. ProShares rolled out the first US listed short Bitcoin futures ETF this week. This is ridiculous that this exists and there's still not a spot Bitcoin yet ETF. It boggles the mind. I don't understand it, but you're right. If you're a headline person, this screams the bottom is near. If you're an anecdote person like that. Oh, one more thing I want to mention. The Science of Hitting has this great chart and great data. I subscribe to that. Looking at the share of US time spent streaming. And what are we looking at here? We're about 30%, which does that seem high or low to you? I feel like this is like the inevitable when ETFs cross over actively managed mutual funds. I feel like this is heading that direction. I think linear TV, is that what they call it? Is probably still more entrenched. It's going to take a while. I think there's still a lot of boomers who are not on board with the streaming. Like for my parents and my wife's parents, we have to twist their arm to watch something on streaming or we have to like enter in our password on their TV so they will watch it. I think that generation still kind of resists a lot of the streaming stuff. So it looks like pretty much everything is either going up or holding steady. Disney is actually down a little bit. We've been talking about the disappointment with Disney. Not great. Not great. They went way too hard on the Star Wars stuff. You know what I watched this weekend? Speaking of streaming, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic about the show. They released two episodes of The Old Man. It's Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow. Someone emailed us this week to our animal spirits and said, great show. Worth watching? Yeah. What's it on Hulu slash FX? So this Hulu slash FX thing, does that mean that it's on FX? It means it's on FX, then you can watch it on Hulu. But here's okay. the thing. The crazy thing to me about streaming now, 20 years ago, Jeff Bridges does a show on network TV and 
There's stories all over the place. Now it happens and no one even mentions it. No one cares. Well, it's just crazy how many movie stars have jumped over into streaming and now it's just normal, where it is in the past. Yeah, yeah. A movie star slumming it on TV was frowned upon. Well, a TV stars was a thing where they couldn't cross over yes. onto the big screen. Yeah, Clooney was like one of the first big ones. Okay, I'll do a quick question from a listener we haven't done in a while. Wife and I maxed out our 401k and kids 529s with a four-month emergency fund. We also have automated trades twice a month into our three-fund lazy portfolio in our brokerage account. But we've got a chunk of cash we're waiting to invest when the market hits a bottom. At what point do you get back into this market and where do you put your money? Sorry, I tuned out. <laughs> we got someone trying to bottom fish with Take some it. cash. They're already maxing everything out. The recommendation thing is you put a little bit in once a week for the next six to eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is, and you don't think about it. You don't try to hit the bottom. There's no difference between catching a bottom or missing it by 10 or 15% over the long term. No, There's no difference. Now, psychologically in the short term, I understand that matters. It can affect you tremendously, but it's not going to affect your life. So do what you got to do, but just get the money in there. All right. What's the most rewatchable movie for you of all time? I think I have my answer after this weekend. I may have mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. The most rewatchable movie of all time is a ridiculous question. Sorry, I didn't give you a lot of time. Think about it. You go first. What's yours? The first half of Goodfellas. Dumb and Dumber was on Netflix. I watched it. I watched it. I haven't seen that movie in forever. (laughs) Me neither. And honestly, it holds up so well. I think it's got to be the funniest movie of all time. I think it's the most rewatchable. It had me thinking because, I mean, I still remembered all the quotes. I think movie quotes, especially to young men in the 90s and early 2000s, were the memes of now. You look back and you go, God, we used to like fully communicate just using movie quotes from comedies. And it sounds so dumb, but those were memes before memes existed. Somebody this weekend said to me where the beer flows like wine. And I said, and the beautiful women flocked like the Sabbath of Capistrata. Right? That's a Dumb and Dumber quote. Yeah, I just can't believe how well it holds up, but you did that, quoting stuff. Anyway. I put this in here. Those were the original memes. The quote memes. So- Wayne's World, Dumb and Dumber, Zoolander, Anchorman, and Superbad. And of course, there's a million others, but you're 100% right. So the most rewatchable movies of all time, that's, a, that's an I mean, interesting one. Shawshank Lebowski, is up there. Shawshank. The first half of Goodfellas is very rewatchable. There are a lot of movies that are like that where it's the first half. Look, the first half of Boogie Nights, second oh, half is not good at all. Yeah, second half, tough to watch. So you know how I feel about watching movies on airplanes. Absolutely one of my favorite activities. Why? Zero distractions. So on the way down there, I watched a movie that was definitely would not pound the table on this. You ever hear of a movie called The Last Night in Soho? Sounds familiar. It was actually pretty good. It's like a psychological thriller. And those movies are always very difficult to end. It's like the zebra in the front and the mule in the back. Type oh, it's of thing. with the same lead from Queen's Gambit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Not worth it though? I love psychological. No, no. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. It got an airplane premium. Got you. I think that's all I watched. And, and on the way home, I watched... Oh, <laughs> I saw Don't Breathe in the theaters. You know that movie? They try to break into a house. The homeowner is a blind Navy SEAL. And it's like a <laughs> horror thriller movie. And I'm not, like it's right up your alley. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was actually a very good movie for what it was. Okay. For what it was, it was very good. So Don't Breathe 2, I was out on that. Like I knew it came out in the theaters. I liked the first one. I had no interest in seeing the second one. I watched the second one on the airplane. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. (laughs) As I got up and I went to the bathroom, I thought to myself, hey, wait a minute. Have I ever seen a movie on an airplane that I didn't like? You know what I mean? Uh Like, am I being objective with myself? Because I just, I love watching movies on airplanes. And I think 
that might be true. But then I came back to my seat and I put on a movie, The Card Counter, with Oscar Isaacs or Isaac Isaacs, whatever. I heard it got bad reviews. Hated it. Okay. And so that invalidated my whole theory about me liking every single movie. So the reason why I didn't like that movie was I didn't like the tone of it. It just didn't do it for me. It was off. Okay. I didn't hate it. It just, it wasn't my cup of tea. Let's say that. By the way, I have to ask, because I went to a wedding this weekend too. I feel like you either love weddings or you hate them. There's no in between. What are you? Are you a love or a hater of weddings? It's interesting you say that because I actually am pretty much in the middle. You are in the middle. Okay. If I had to choose, I would say I hate it. I figured you'd be a hater. I love going to weddings because it's an open bar. People are dressed up. Everyone's in a good mood. It's just, I think it's hard to not have fun at a wedding. You should see me if in the you wedding. you know at least a handful of people. I'm not in a great mood. Actually, that's a good point. Because the wedding that I was at this weekend, I knew nobody. That hurts. But I didn't hate it. No, no, of course. I'm only teasing. Oh, I want to end with this. If you are a financial advisor and you happen to be listening to the show right now, the Animal Spirits Podcast, Ritholtz Wealth Management is always hiring financial advisors. We're always looking for great advisors. So if you are not thrilled with your current home, that to be clear, we're not hiring new advisors right now. We just did a few of those. But if you are an experienced advisor and you want a new home for your clients, hit us up at info at ridholtzwealth.com. And boy, are we growing. I went down to Chicago last week to visit with our operations team. It's huge. Seven times as big as when I joined-ish. We had our last firm-wide offsite in Austin, Texas. 20, what year was that? 2018? 19, I think. Wasn't it? I can't remember. Anyway, I'm told that there was more people at the operations offsite than all of the entire offsite three years ago. Exponential growth in people. It's true. It's fun to see. We've brought in a number of people from Animal Spirits that are listeners That's of the true. show. That's true. It's kind of fun. Hit us up, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Leave us a review. People always ask that on podcasts. We haven't asked in a while. Sure. It's got to help. Do you think it actually helps? It probably doesn't help, does it? No, it's got to help. No. Do it anyway. No, it helps because then you get recommended and the flywheel. Are we still saying flywheel in 2022? Are we still using that term? I think flywheel's dead. Sorry. Got All right. Up. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>